Hello? All right. <laughs> we got it. So, rookie move. I didn't put the do not disturb on, and the minute we got started, of course, my phone rings. Uh, so it it knocked the uh, it knocked the podcast down right away. So, um, but that's that's funny. So that's that's a rookie move. So and listen, you'll learn. Listen, you'll learn. Exactly. So, well, welcome to the Coach Haas podcast, and this is powered by Fit Life Performance Training. Uh, and on today's podcast, this is my first ever guest, so I'm I'm new at this. So we're gonna we're gonna wing it together. Her <laughs> name is Dr. Nicole. If I'm saying it right, Serdica. 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 Dr. <laughs> Nicole Serdica, and she's a doctor of physical therapy and a certified strength and conditioning specialist with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And you're passionate about bringing, bridging the gap between rehabilitation and sports performance for youth, collegiate, and professional athletes. You believe in treating patients holistically in conjunction with the entire healthcare and coaching team. So it's funny. I'll start this real quick, and I'll say I met Dr. Nicole through LinkedIn. And um, what caught my eye was this simple phrase, and it was bridging the gap between rehabilitation and sports performance. And I find that very unique because there's not a lot of that out there right now, and I've been in it for longer than I've really kind of posted about it um, because I'm still learning, and I didn't know really where that was. Um, so I ended up finding the certification, but I don't want to do all the talking here. I want to introduce Dr. Nicole, and I want her to talk about herself and, and tell me, but I just thought that, that was neat that I, I found that phrase, and that's what kind of led me to to request you as a friend, and then we kind of got rolling from there, and I said, I want to have you on. I want to, I want to learn, so I, this is your opportunity to teach, so go ahead. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, and I am the least technologically savvy uh, person that you'll probably come across, so I can't be of any service if something goes wrong here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I, I grew up playing soccer. I guess that's kind of where my story starts. And when I was a senior in high school, I was already verbally committed to play soccer at St. John's University in New York. And I fractured my tibia and fibula, so that's both bones in the lower leg. Had yep. a surgery to get a rod put in my leg and some screws. And then had a few months of pretty intensive physical therapy. And throughout the course of my therapy, I just kept thinking, you know, I was pretty close to not reaching my goal of playing Division One soccer because of this injury. And I really sure. felt that my physical therapist, Sharon Wentworth at Elite Sports Physical Therapy in New Jersey, um, she really guided me through not just the, the physical rehabilitation, but also the emotional and psychological and making sure I knew and was confident in the fact that I was ready to go back to playing soccer. Sure. So that, that happened in November that I broke it. The following August, 
I reported to preseason camp and passed every fitness test. So I thought it was pretty cool that I not only rehabilitated, but ended up being a better athlete at the end of my physical therapy than I had been prior to my injury. So it kind of inspired in me a desire to help other athletes reach their goals at a point in their lives when they feel like maybe their goals are now out of reach because of an injury. So like I said, I I feel that it's incredibly important that athletes feel empowered and that at the end of a physical therapy process, they feel that they're even better athletes and they're able to do things like hit PRs and perform better than they were before. And I think that's an area where, especially in the youth athlete population, that we fall a bit short because not every youth athlete has availability to be trained by strength and conditioning coaches. I know it's, it's growing that field where youth athletes are getting more access to it, but really it's the elite level, the college athletes, professional athletes that can be discharged to their strength and conditioning coach and youth athletes tend not to have those resources as readily available. So I think it's really important that if you're a physical therapist working with youth athletes, that you know how to progress them through the performance phase before they're going to return to their sport. Right. And so when they come out of physical therapy or when insurance really stops paying, you're still, and I'm just going to use an ACL because that's, that, that tends to be the big one, right? Everyone's mm-hmm. doing ACL injury prevention, reduction, things like that. So, and I, and I have a, a few of those right now. Um, but basically they're discharged and there's still probably a good four, five, six month gap there where they're, they're back from the injury, but they're not ready to return to play by any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely. And that is a huge frustration of mine. And you kind of touched on it with the insurance thing a bit. I've had patients that like you said, still need several months of physical therapy before they get back to soccer, football, basketball, whatever it is that they play. And their insurance company says, oh, it's not medically necessary. They're out of pain and they're able to jog. Well, they need to do a heck of a lot more than just jog for their sport. And they're not back to their prior level of function, let alone performing for performance, you know, trying to be a better athlete. So that's a huge frustration, and that's why you kind of touched on my, my LinkedIn bio where I say treating the patient holistically with the whole team. I think it's so important to reach out to their sports coaches and say, hey, they're getting discharged from physical therapy because of this, but they are not ready to be playing full out. You know, They can warm up with the team for a few weeks, see how that goes, and they can progress into pre-planned drills non-contact drills, and then keep progressing from there into the more reactive and game-like situations. But unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. Right. Now, and and some people have a better advantage to that as well. So I'm like, I'm assuming here that the physical therapy is inside of, or I'm sorry, maybe there's a fitness or a sports performance inside of the physical therapy that you work at. So that team is much closer in contact is that correct right I've I've uh, I tend to move a lot <laughs> my husband and I have moved from the east coast to the west coast several times now so 
so I'm always in a different setting, uh, hopefully in California to stay now. But yeah, it's when there's uh, like the place that I did my physical therapy at for my leg, there's within a larger uh, sports performance center. So it's a lot easier to have that teamwork approach and that communication at all times of, okay, hey, they can squat with the team, but they can't yet do single leg jumping activities as an example. Right. So that way the athlete can still participate and train with their team, which I think is huge psychologically for the athlete. But the strength coach knowing, okay, they can do these things, but here's their limitations. But we can certainly push what they're able to do. So that is, that is a, um, a really nice environment to be in. But that's usually not the situation. Okay. Usually, Yeah, right. usually you're in a – physical therapy place where you're with your physical therapist for 15, 20 minutes and then get passed off to an aide for the rest of your time and hoping that they know something about exercise and mechanics. But uh, that's, yeah. that's one. And, <laughs> and the room to do some of the things. Like once exactly. you start getting into, you know, once they can and do some multi-direction, change of direction things, you want a little bit of space to do that in as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's another problem is that towards the end, Maybe you have them doing box jumps because there's space for that, but are you able to get them doing reactive agility? Probably not, because where are you right. going to do that at unless you bring them out to the parking lot? <laughs> um, right. So, so there are a lot of limitations and barriers to optimal treatment and performance in uh, the youth athlete and any athletic population, especially in that return to play part of their rehabilitation. Absolutely. Now, where where are you at now? Where are you at? Are you in your private location, or do you work for a company? How? What do you do now? Yeah, I currently work for a, a outpatient orthopedic practice in Santa Monica called Elevate Physical Therapy and Fitness, and okay. it's not a sports performance center like I've been at at the past. But there is a, for example, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to work there is because they have a squat rack, which I thought was huge for a physical therapy <laughs> office. And we are lucky in that we have personal trainers there as well. A few of them are certified strength and conditioning specialists. And we always have that teamwork approach where, uh, for example, we've been working with a, uh, a patient who's about 10 months uh, post ACL reconstruction and uh, wanted to ski this winter and he would come in for two or three days a week of physical therapy two or three days a week with the personal trainers just to get some more fitness in and there was always constant communication of okay this is what we did in physical therapy I'm really trying to work on rotational stability and uh, load absorption in the transverse plane so that's what we're working on if you can keep working on that but watch out for this and try to cue him for that. So that's sure. always nice because you have sure. just that constant communication. I'm also really lucky in that my office is out of network with all insurance companies and it's more of a cash-based model. And while that, yes, leaves some people out who can't afford it, at least it doesn't give us any barriers insofar as an insurance company coming in and saying, eh, you don't need physical therapy anymore. It's not medically necessary. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and that's what ours is. Uh, you know, we're basically private duty at that at, at that point. I mean, they're coming out of physical therapy. Um, 
a lot of the physical therapy companies in the area, ATI is one of the big ones mm-hmm. here. Um, and I've kind of started to create a network with those physical therapists to get referrals and, you know, kind of use that cross-referring there. Um, but I make sure that, you know, when, they, when these clients come to me, I'm like, all right, who's your physical therapist? Get me their number, blah, blah, blah. I want to reach out to them. I want to see how much of a report I can get from them. Um, I think the toughest part is, and it, it's not always, um, is that, like you said, that communication, that the mm-hmm. thing that you have that advantage right now is, is they're all under the same umbrella. They're under the same roof. Uh, and I find that really important because then I, I believe that the communication's, you know, that much greater. Absolutely. And I've even had patients who, if they don't train at our facility or if they have outside trainers that they've had for years, I tell them, hey, give them my cell phone number, give them my email address. You know, if they want to meet up, I'm fine with that. And I'm 100% transparent in what we're doing in physical therapy because it's just going to be to the, the patient client's benefit for us to all be on the same page and working together. I've even had group uh, messages, group texts with my patient client, myself, their Pilates instructor, and their personal trainer, where we're saying, okay, went to the doctor today, this is what's happening on imaging, this is to be what to be careful of, but we can really push this here, all on the same page. So I think that that's huge that you're reaching out to the local physical therapist. And I, as, as far as I've seen, I, just, I think... I see I the need, you know, I, I saw oh, the need absolutely. for it. I just thought, you know what, like, it's just, I'm not hearing it around here. And I... And I do a lot of research on the internet, and you know, and I and I started to see it, and I'm hearing it, and I'm like, "Ooh, what is that?" You know. And then I went and got a certification to to do the uh, the post orthopedic rehab, and I just thought, "This is perfect. This is really up my alley." So. Mhm. Yeah, and I think most physical therapists are open set and looking for that. They they want to know that their patient client is in the right hands once they do have to leave physical therapy for whatever reason. Or in a lot of cases, if, if say I'm working with a college athlete who's here on winter break or summer break, and I know that they have to leave on whatever date, or if, you know, if they had an ankle sprain and their swelling down, swelling down range of motion is good and there's no more real limitations or impairments, I'll call up their strength coach or athletic trainer, shoot them an email and say, hey, was seeing so-and-so for this reason, got her as far as she needed to in physical therapy, and now this is what could still be worked on, um, and then whatever methods you want to do for that. If there's something else that you see with her, you can always shoot me an email, give me a call or text message, and we can discuss it. And I just like keeping that communication open. That's great. That's great. And you know what? Then that's I'm going to continue to do that because I, the more I talk to the physical therapist, I hear that in their voice. It's like they're happy to hear that there's someone that, because they don't want to just turn them over, you know, and it, this isn't to badmouth any trainers out there. I think they don't want to just turn them over to anybody. Yeah. You know, they want to make sure that, you know, people are, you know, that these coaches are, are, are doing this and, and this is, you know, they know what they're doing, um, which kind of leads me to asking you know, in a small way, I have a guy right now that I'm working with, a kid. He's a he's a sophomore in college, soccer player, uh, tore his right ACL. And as we're going through, he's pro- he just about is at nine months. Mm-hmm. And I am very 
apprehensive at this point to do certain things because I'm still seeing a lot of ankle collapsing and valgus mm-hmm. in both knees mm-hmm. and both feet. What would you suggest without seeing this person and just kind of hearing those things there? What are some key things that, that we could be doing better um, to help prevent that? How, how, how do we get, because to me, a lot of the times when people uh, tear one, they're at a higher risk to tear the other one than they are the one that they had surgery on. Is that mm-hmm. correct? <laughs> so not necessarily at a higher risk of the other one, but there is definitely an increased risk of re-tearing or tearing the other side. So actually when kids under the age of 20, athletes under the age of 20, go back to playing their sport at their same level that they were when they tore their ACL initially, they are at about a 29% increased risk of tearing that same side or the opposite side. So that means, you know, group of kids who tear their ACLs go back to playing the same sport, a third, a quarter to a third of them will tear the same side or the opposite side. So you kind of hit the nail on the head there and that there's definitely an increased risk. And the primary risk factor of any injury, particularly ACL injuries, is a previous history of that same injury. So now, do that you think that's because... Uh, a lot of the mechanics aren't necessarily getting corrected the way they should be? Yeah, I think a lot of the the predisposing modifiable risk factors aren't being addressed. So it's not just, a, okay, you tore your ACL, you had ACL reconstruction, let's go through the protocol and rehab it accordingly, strengthen your quads, your hamstrings, your glutes, your calf, work on uh, frontal plane control, so not dropping into that valgus position or that medial knee collapse. But look at the individual. It shouldn't just be a cookbook cookbook recipe of, you tore your ACL, this is what we're going to do. It's what about that individual caused them or maybe put put them at an increased risk of tearing their ACL in the first place. And that's going to be different for everyone. I'm sure there are similarities across sports, across gender and age groups. But that's that's going to be something that's highly variable. And actually... um, and that's, I didn't mean to cut you off there. And that's what made me ask that question is because I feel like at nine months post-op, he should be further along, but I don't, I don't want to push it there. Like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable, and I'm still working on getting these other things corrected. And he shouldn't, you know, he might not be where somebody else is at nine months. Somebody at nine months might be able to play right, right, right. now, you know. And, and he's a lot clearly of not there. A lot of the research does show that nine is kind of the marker of when your risk for a re-injury starts to go down. Um, but having said that, if say we were to base ACL reconstruction rehabilitation based on time alone, there, there really isn't complete healing until about the two-year mark. And in fact, athletes who tear their ACLs and go on to re-tear it or tear the other side, 50% of those who re-injure their ACL happen in the first year, and 75% of them happen in the first two years. So really, if you're going to base it solely on timeline, which of course is not what's suggested or advised, 
then you would wait for two years. So for anyone to base any return to play on any timeline of post-surgery, you know, weeks or months since surgery, that's not really optimal. That's not what's in the, the athlete's best interest. So the fact that you're saying there's still that collapse and some ankle stability issues going on, if you don't feel comfortable with it, then there's, you know, there's things to work on before you return them to play. If they're doing that with pre-planned motor actions, pre-planned movements, what is it going to look like when, A, they're fatigued, B, they have yep. to react to other things going on in the field during game-like situations, during competition. So I would say that I kind of disregard, yeah, you want to hit certain certain points at certain points in time or certain landmarks, but I wouldn't, I try to forget about the amount of time since surgery and just look at objectively what's in front of me and what's going on with this individual. And um, one other interesting thing is with, as far as the ACL injury prevention program, the neuromuscular training, uh-huh. we can, we can teach, they took a group, I forgot who did this study, but they took a group of female soccer players, one of the highest risk populations for ACL injuries, and they put them through a neuromuscular training, ACL injury prevention uh, training protocol. And even though their risk of injury, their relative risk of injury decreased by, I think, it was somewhere between 60 and 80%, their relative risk was reduced after this training program they still didn't have significantly different kinematics in their drop jump test or in their lateral cutting agility test. So that's something to that, even though maybe um, knees valgus on both sides, you know, he's a sophomore. We know that boys that age, girls that age, don't tend to have the greatest neuromuscular control. So of course we train it and we want it to improve. Um, but in my mind, as long as they're able to control the variability of movement that they have and their strength is good and everything else looks good. Now, of course, that, that dynamic medial collapse of the knee that's uncontrolled, we want to avoid that as much as possible. Um, but I try to take that with a grain of salt and know that maybe mechanics aren't the entire picture. Right. Okay. Now, that them fallen arches, from what I understand, right, uh, everything, most of the things are going to come from the ground and work their way up. So most of the time when you have some kind of knee, it's probably because maybe the foot mechanics aren't right or the hip because of the knee or the – but most of the time it's starting from the ground up. So he's got these fallen arches and then the valgus on top of that, right? Do you see that yeah. often? Is that often the case where there's both of those things happening? Yeah, I think that there's, there's an interesting combination between uh, bottom down and ground up um, as far as the hip, knee, and ankle are all concerned. And there's, I know a lot of work by... Chris Powers, for example, will say that, you know, if you strengthen the glutes, right, what the, the three main actions of the gluteus maximus, for example, are hip extension, hip abduction, and hip external rotation. 
So when somebody falls into that, you know, the position of no return or that, uh, that knee valgus position, what's really happening is from the hip, they're in a flexed position, they're going into internal rotation and a deduction, adduction of the hip, and that's what's putting the knee in that valgus position. So those are all the three opposite movements of the gluteus maximus. So the gluteus maximus can really help serve to pull that knee out of that valgus position and keep it aligned a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yep. So a lot of Chris Powers' work, for example, um, will say, you know, if we train the gluteus maximus, that's going to help with the alignment of the knee and then thereby the foot and ankle. There's other studies that show quite the opposite, that depending on foot placement, um, will interfere with how the knee and the hip are reacting to that with the foot ground interface. So I think looking at it from both sides is important. I certainly try to train ankle stability and mobility and trying to help athletes get control of it so they're not falling into that overpronated position and then there's a better setup up the chain, but also training the glutes and training a better hip strategy so that they have the strength and control to help pull their knee out of that position. Gotcha. So lots of different types of bridging, single leg, double leg, uh, off of a bench. Yeah, I think a lot of hip thrusts are good. Bridges, like you said, double leg and single leg, clamshell exercise, sideline hip abduction. Uh, There's a fire hydrant um, exercise in both quadruped position and standing crab walk monster walk anything basically with the when you slap a band around your legs and yep. work the glutes yep. that way uh, but then of course I, i'm also a huge proponent of you know squats and deadlifts as soon as they possibly can or any variation absolutely. of those two absolutely so real quick on the bands um so there's a couple different positions you can go with that, right? So you could go above your knee, mm-hmm. you could go below the knee, and I've also like to go around the feet. Yeah, I feel as though that you have to be careful doing because maybe the ACL isn't strong enough to handle that type of force yet. Is that correct? Yeah, so anytime you change the position, as the band goes further away from your hips, so knee, lower leg, foot, ankle, you're increasing the lever arm, which is going to increase the amount of torque at the muscles in the joints. So if you're trying to really isolate the glutes, I generally start above the knees because then nothing below the knee is going to have to really kick in as much, and it's really going to isolate that exercise to the glutes, whatever glute muscle you're trying to isolate there. Then if somebody gets really good at it, and again, I I would be careful with after an ACL surgery, I probably wouldn't do this right away. Um, If somebody has meniscus or LCL, MCL strain issues, um, minor tears or whatever else they might have, I would be careful of this initially until there's some better healing. But if you, when you go below the knee, that increases the lever arm and makes it more difficult. So now you're going to have to really work your glutes a lot harder in order to do the same movement by moving the band down further on gotcha. your leg. And if they, you're also and if they have haven't it. increased that strength yet, then 
it really you're kind of working against yourself. Yeah, exactly. Because, because then there is more room for them to compensate with other muscle groups. So maybe now yeah. they're going to kick in their hamstrings a lot more because the hamstring crosses below the gotcha. knee. So there's, gotcha. there's more availability yep. for them to recruit that more where we really want to try to isolate the glutes. Now, if you don't care if they're bringing in their hamstrings a lot more, then sure, go for it. But uh, for the sake of the exercise to strengthen the glutes, maybe you want to see if they can isolate it first with keeping it above the knee and then bringing it down as they get control and strength. And then as far as putting it around the foot, I really like that too after an ankle sprain, for example, or any kind of foot and ankle issue because gotcha. they really need to work their peroneals on the outside of the lower leg and into the ankle mm -hmm. in order to uh, keep their feet pacing forward during that exercise. Gotcha. All right. And I have one other thing. The, this is, this is uh, still new to me, but obviously you probably have seen this much more. You have three different ways to repair the ACL, correct? You have your hamstring, your patella tendon, or a cadaver. Mm -hmm. Are there any more? There are. There's a couple other ways, and they keep uh, researching new methods as well. So um, there's some of those they'll do an IT band um, as an ACL graph. There's... Um, wow. Yeah, there, so what we say, there's hamstring, there's patella, there's cadaver, there's IT band, there's quad tendon, which I've seen a couple times. Wow. And then they're doing a study, I believe they're still recruiting participants for this. In Boston, they're doing a bear, so that's a bridge. Basically what they're doing is they're taking your own – ACL, and they take the two remnants of it, and they bring them together in this kind of matrix that they're calling a, a bridge that has your own blood in it, and they kind of stitch them together inside this bridge that tries to cause the ACL to heal or help the ACL to heal, and so it would still be your own ACL. Now, that would uh -huh. be ideal uh -huh. and optimal if it works, right? Right. So the, the whole issue with the ACL, so for example, if you tear your MCL, the MCL is outside of your knee capsule, outside of the joint of the knee. So it gets good blood supply and therefore it can heal. Same thing with the ligaments in your ankle when you roll your ankle. They heal pretty well because they have good blood supply. Now, your ACL is inside of the joint so it doesn't get a great blood supply which is why it doesn't heal on its own and that's why it needs to be reconstructed um so the idea here is that if we give the acl an environment in which it can heal and gets a good blood supply then maybe it can heal like other ligaments in your body do with a good blood supply so they're still in uh in the early stages of that there's been a couple patients who've come out of that and had some good long-term success and then I believe there's been some who haven't. So, but it's just like the ACL surgery wow. now, right? Some, some succeed and others don't. The other thing that I think is going to start taking off a bit more is just not getting surgery. So you, there's no increase. One of the big things is, oh, I need to get surgery because I don't want to increase my risk of osteoarthritis down the road. Well, the right. study, the research really shows that 
whether you get the surgery or not, your risk of osteoarthritis is about the same. So I think that that, that may be the next thing we start looking at, kind of the next frontier is can we get athletes back to a performance level of function without getting a reconstruction? Wow. So that that matrix that you were talking about you think will be more where they're just able to use their, their own ligaments again, just remending them. Yes, exactly. And I'm a little skeptical about it, um, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope that it does work because that certainly would be better than having – because a, a ligament and, and a tendon are inherently different things. There's different makeup of collagen in each of them, different cell types. So um, to take a patella tendon and make it work as an anterior cruciate ligament they're inherently different. They have a different structure, so we can't really ask them to do the same exact job. So that's not ideal. Also, you're taking away a third of your patella tendon, which transmits force from your quad down through your knee. So people tend to get patella tendinopathy after that surgery. So that's not ideal either. So I think that I like the fact that there's research being done to continually find new ways of solving this problem. Um, and I hope that this, the bear surgery that with this bridge and the, the healing of an ACL, I, I'm hoping that this works, but I'm, I'm cautious about how optimistic I am about it. Gotcha. I understand. I could go on for hours because I'm so intrigued by this. But what I want to do is I want to have you on so many more times. So I want to save some questions and I'll write some things down. But to try to end it, how would somebody, how would somebody find you? Tell, tell, tell the audience how they would yes. find you. So um, I actually, I have my, my own website um, and that's NicoleCerticaPhysio.com. Nicole's N-I-C-O-L-E, Thertica, S-U-R-D-Y-K-A, physio.com. And I like to read literature and research and write blog posts about them and try to break down the research so that it can be implemented in a youth athlete environment. So it's there, my blogs are pretty easy reads for athletes, for coaches, parents, um, so I think that that's a good source of information. And then I'm also pretty active on Instagram. And my Instagram is Dr. Nicole PT. So Dr. period Nicole PT. And I try to be active on Twitter. Um, but I'm, I'm like I said, I'm not the most technologically savvy person. So Twitter, <laughs> like social media things are a little outside of my realm, but I really try to share. So, um, I can I can relate. I'm doing the best I can here, but I can totally relate to that. Yes, I'm yes. doing good on on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and you know and and I have some YouTube stuff out there. But it, you know what? Listen, my what I'm really starting to realize is I'm so intrigued by the knowledge that people possess, especially in the things that I like to talk about, which mm -hmm. are sports injuries. So to me, I think this could be you know, the next thing for me. I, I just love to talk to people 
and if I could turn it into a little bit of an interview, but at the same time, let's keep it loose. And, you know, it's a podcast. I can do it whenever I want. I'm doing it in my car, but in my car for the last 45 minutes. Um, so um, so it, it, this just proves that it could, it could work anywhere. Um, this, is, this has been great. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I hope that we can get you on again. Definitely. I'm all for it whenever you want. Dr. Nicole, thank you so much, and uh, we'll be talking soon. All right. Great to speak with you. Bye-bye. Bye.